The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started, just a reminder, just an announcement. We have a brightly colored piece of paper out there on the front table that is an email I received from Ulan uh, the other day. For those of you who have uh, been wondering what happened to Ulan, what's going on, it's pretty much same old, same old, still in Berlin. Uh, still gets opportunities to teach at a couple of churches, and uh, there's been no... Apparently no decision, or at least he hasn't informed us of any decision made by the German government or anything, so we just need to continue to pray for his safety and, and God's provision. Sounds like things are going uh, fairly well for him. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus on what he has to teach us through his word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that your word teaches us how we are to think, how we are to reflect upon life, and how we are to respond to the problems and the vicissitudes of life, the challenges we face each day uh, from a biblical viewpoint as we express our ongoing dependence upon you as we trust you on a daily basis. Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that uh, this study will particularly challenge us and help us to think through how we respond to uh, challenges, to adversities in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before I go on to Genesis 38, I thought we would take one more class to revisit Genesis chapter 37 by way of application. I've been thinking about this for a while. Last time I got ahead of myself and said, well, we'd go on into Genesis 38, and I knew better. I still had ten pages of notes I hadn't covered on Genesis 37. So uh, we are going to go back there, but not so much in terms of looking at the details of the text as we are in terms of just setting, using that as a, as a framework for understanding application and thinking through how we as believers need to uh, think about what uh, 
God is doing in our own lives as we go through various tests and trials. I like to use and look at the things that are happening in the lives of these Old Testament believers as examples for us because they're going through the same kind of growth process we are. And 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6 says that these things happened as an example for us. So there are definitely patterns there that are similar to the patterns we face, even though some of the dynamics of our spiritual life are different from the dynamics of their spiritual life. We, of course, have God the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon. We have uh, salvation that is provided for us in toto by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But nevertheless, we still walk by faith and not by sight, and we still go through similar growth processes. Now, last time, the time before, I brought in my favorite chart to give a blueprint or flow chart of the dynamics of the Christian life. This is something that should be familiar to uh, most everyone. And I just want to focus on the initial part. After we're saved, after we trust Christ as Savior and we have a new life in Christ and we are spiritual infants, God takes us through a growth process, a training program to prepare us for coming out the other end at the judgment seat of Christ to prepare us for our future uh, ruling and reigning responsibilities, to train us for leadership, as I've pointed out in the last few weeks. And we really see this leadership dynamic at work in Joseph. But as we've covered in the last few weeks, it's this section here, this test of doctrine, that is crucial. James 1, 2 through 4, other passages that we go to show that God tests us. He evaluates us. And these tests aren't the big tests. I learned very early on when I was teaching and interacting with sheep in the pew that people get the idea that a test is a big thing. It comes with neon lights or something, and it's a big issue. But that's not what a biblical view of test. A test is an any opportunity where you engage your volition to either apply or ignore doctrine. And that can be anything. That can happen a thousand times a day. That can happen in how you deal with people that are driving down the freeway in the morning or in the afternoon or on the way to church. It can happen when you get on the phone dealing with uh, customer service at Time Warner because they haven't been able to get Roadrunner working for the last three days. I just didn't even call them today, frankly. Well, I'm not going to pass that test, not going to engage it. Uh, If it's God's will, I'll have Internet, right? So we have all kinds of tests. Everything happens. You get, you know, I know somebody back in the back going on a modified high-protein, low-carb diet, and they just come to church and get tested because we have cookies all spread out in the back. And so you never know where you're going to run into these opportunities to apply doctrine or to ignore doctrine. And, of course, every time we apply doctrine, that is part of the growth-building process in our spiritual life. And every time we decide to just do it our own way, following our, uh, the, own, the inclination of our own sin nature, then we just go through that downward spiral into uh, sin, human good, uh, temporal death. And if we stay there, then it just has a culminating impact uh, leading to uh, self-destruction and fragmentation of our spiritual life. So just kind of keep this in mind because that's basically the same process in the Old Testament. Uh, Not that Old Testament believers walk by the Holy Spirit. They were walking by faith and not by sight. They didn't have the 
uh, filling of the Holy Spirit, but the same basic dynamic is at work. So we're going to take what's going on with Joseph and switch that over to thinking in terms of application of all of this, what's going on in chapter 37 to our own lives. Think about what you would do if you were in Joseph's position. I thought about that a lot. I've been there a few times. I'm sure you have as well, where people we trust, people we rely upon, people who ought to be looking out for our best interests uh, stab us in the back, that we go through uh, various forms of rejection. So let's just orient to different kinds of testing that are involved in this. These are just four general categories of testing that everybody goes through in the process of spiritual life. First of all, we have people testing. We always go through this because we live with people. And no matter who it is that you're living with, no matter how much you adore them, no matter how wonderful they are, they're a dirty little rotten sinner. And so are you. And they not only have to live with you and all of your sin nature flaws and failures, but you have to live with them and all their sin nature flaws and foibles. And that's part of that growth process in, in marriage. Uh, God uses that, I believe, and, and with a family to teach us uh, a lot of different things in terms of spiritual life. But we not only have to deal with, with spouses and children and parents, but we also have to deal with people who just are out to get us. And that can come in all kinds of manifestations. Sometimes there are uh, people who uh, seem to support us and they don't. Uh, sometimes it's just folks who just don't like us for personality conflicts or whatever reason uh, it may be. There are folks that betray us. There are folks that stab us in the back, people you work with, uh, people you live with, people that are sometimes folks in your family and you just don't understand where they're coming from. Uh, I think it's particularly hard for parents who raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then when those children become adults, they turn their back on the Word, they turn their back on doctrine, and it's particularly difficult and painful to deal with that. Or just dealing with people who aren't dependable, and you can't rely upon them. And when we do that, we use basic problem-solving devices, stress busters, the faith rest drill, where we take certain promises, mix them with faith, and we have to rely on it. That's fundamental, foundational. We learn grace orientation. Grace orientation is foundational to dealing with any people problem because we have to deal with them in grace. And the model for that is always the model of God dealing with us. Because when God sent his son to die for you, you were at enmity with him. That means you were an enemy of God. You were, you were not, you know, on a good day you were obnoxious to God. But on a normal day you were just reprehensible. I was too. I mean, there's nothing about us that is lovable in God's sight. His decision to save us is totally based on who he is and what he was planning to do in history. And so that becomes a model for us. We got this salvation, and God gave us everything, not because we deserve it, not because we're nice people, not because we're Americans and we, uh, you know, we vote for the right political party and that we uh, live in the right neighborhoods or anything like that, just because of who and what God is. So we have to deal with our enemies the same way, with people who betray us and hurt us, people who reject it. See, that's what Joseph is learning 
throughout this whole episode, this is one of the major themes in this whole episode with Joseph and his brothers, their rejection, betrayal. Here these brothers are selling him. They, first they want to kill him. Then they decide to, to uh, that they're just going to leave him and let him starve to death in an empty cistern. And then they decide, well, let's make a few bucks off of him. We'll sell him into slavery. Now, don't, wouldn't you just love to have a bunch of siblings like that? I mean, it was all of his siblings except for, um, except for one who was probably dealing with guilt issues over something else. That was Reuben. So we move from grace orientation to love for God. As we love God, as we come to understand who and what God is, and as you grow in your perception of God's character, that then becomes our motivation. And we realize that if we're living to please God, then that means that that affects and impacts the way we behave, and so that develops our love for people. And that love for people is characterized by two words, I think. Some people have trouble with the concept of impersonal love because they think that uh, means mechanical or cold or dead or something like that. It just simply means you don't have to know the other person. You don't have to have a personal relationship with them. I don't have a personal relationship with that uh, uneducated, uh, uncaring customer service representative on the other end of the telephone, right? We've all been there. But I need to treat them with respect and love because they're created in the image and likeness of God. And as frustrating as it gets sometimes, we still have to think about that. So it's impersonal love because you don't know them. You'll never see them again. And sometimes that's uh, difficult for us to to handle. So we have love for people impersonally and unconditionally. That means we're not saying, well, no matter how badly you treat me, no matter how inept you are, I am going. I have certain standards of how I am going to treat people, and I have to maintain those standards no matter what happens. And then we have thought testing. Thought testing. Thought testing can be the a result of all kinds of people testing, because we can deal with uh, thought testing in the arena of lust, all kinds of different categories of lust. We can deal with anger. Somebody betrays us. Now we have to deal with our reaction for, toward anger or bitterness or any other kind of mental attitude sin. So when we get into realms of thought testing, what are the stress busters, the problem-solving devices that we use in that area? Well, of course, faith rest drill. That's the foundation for any kind of response to any level of testing. Uh, self-mastery, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit, is just self-control. Sometimes we just have to say, I'm not going to think about that. When something comes into our head and we start thinking about it, I was reminded of this the other day as I was uh, just working through some scriptures. And this was a passage in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, finally, brethren, 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true... Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Well, that summary can apply to at least one thing, and that's Scripture. So when we're tempted in the area of mental attitude sin, we need to just exercise the self-mastery, self-control, and say, okay, let me think about some scripture I've memorized and just think it through. Lately, I've been uh, engaged again in a rigorous uh, Bible memory 
uh, program where I'm just trying to memorize through a bunch of different passages and challenging some uh, other some young pastors to do the same. And so I just said, okay, as I was thinking about one thing that was leading me off into a path that I didn't want to go down, I said, let's just start thinking about the Bible verses that I'm memorizing. That just totally reoriented my thought pattern uh, right away. So it's just a matter of choice and exercising the discipline to redirect our thinking. That involves, of course, doctrinal orientation. We have to let the thinking of our mind focus on the Word. That's why the New King James translates it, let's meditate on these things. That captures the idea from the Greek that it's not just thinking in terms of some sort of abstract philosophical uh, reasoning, but it is meditating on things. You find this concept of meditation all the way through Scripture from uh, the Old Testament Deuteronomy, where and in fact, Tom and I were talking just a minute ago. Deuteronomy 6 talks about, uh, tells the Jews that they need to talk about the Word of God and they're rising up and they're sitting down in the morning and in the evening. And what that's talking about is not that everything you say has to do with Scripture, but that we are to constantly be relating the details and events of our lives to what the Word of God says. And if your parents then you need to be using every opportunity to take the events, situations that your children face and help them see how to look at those situations from divine viewpoint and how to respond to those situations in divine viewpoint. The first psalm talks about meditating on God's Word day and night, and that doesn't mean that that's all you think about. What that means is that as you go through the details of life, the events of the day, that as you take time to reflect upon them, you try to relate, correlate those events with the doctrine that you know in your soul and thinking about how that doctrine affects how you should think about that subject or category, whatever it is, or how you should respond to those particular situations. And then, of course, occupation with Christ. Our focus ultimately is on Jesus Christ, the uh, pioneer of our faith, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Third category of testing is system testing. System testing is where we deal with all kinds of bureaucracies, whether they're, they're governmental or whether they have to do with the workplace. Uh, you may be in the military. You have military bureaucracies. You may be working uh, for the uh, city government, local government. You've got those bureaucracies. You may be dealing with the police uh, agency. You may be dealing with just a large company, IBM, Intel. Any large company has its internal politics and its internal bureaucracies. Of course, I always have to stick my favorite subject in, which is uncaring customer service. I was talking with someone today, and they were uh, <coughs> had a customer service uh, situation, and the thing is, nobody cares. I mean, whoever you're talking to, you, we just have to realize they don't care. doesn't matter how important it is to you. That person on the other end of the line really doesn't care. They're getting paid their $5.50 an hour, whether uh, it matters to them or not, and they don't care. So we just have to learn to relax and trust God and, and uh, not talk to them about their parental heritage. Um, Employer organizations, whatever you have to deal with with at work, uh, there's always different politics in every organization, in the local church, uh, in denominations, in schools, 
whatever it is, there's always certain internal politics and systems that we have to deal with, as well as just dealing with government and politics. So that's system testing. Same thing, the the problems-solving devices of stress busters that we use start with faith rest drill, grace orientation, because once again you have to deal sometimes with people who are uh, implementing uh, bureaucratic policies that they have no control over whatsoever. In fact, um, uh, we had a situation where we were subscribing to a paper that I won't mention, and and, uh, every Sunday morning it failed to be there. And every Sunday morning I had to get on the telephone call and, and talk to people about why the paper wasn't there. And the thing is, when you call, this is some contracted out organization that really has no vested interest on, on whether the paper succeeds or not. They just get contracted to field the calls and, you know, input the data into a computer and send it off to somebody who will hopefully bring you a paper. So nobody cares. Nobody's concerned. Nobody has a vested You can't find out from them who, who delivers your paper, who their boss is. They don't know anything. You know, so it's the kind of stuff that can just drive you nuts if you think about it. So you have to start, you know, focusing on doctrine, on grace, on, you know, love for God, occupation with Christ, and deal with these things. And then we have disaster testing, which, of course, is uh, something we're all familiar with, especially living in the post-Katrina, post-Hurricane Rita environment, but there's also financial disasters that can come upon you for any reason, whether it's your fault or somebody else's fault or just nobody's fault. Uh, There can be military disasters that take place. This can involve you as a member of your family serving in the military, and if they get wounded or if uh, the Lord takes them home, that can be part of that disaster testing, weather disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, personal disasters that take place as we uh, just face certain things in life that bring us tremendous disappointment, uh, health disasters, all kinds of things that can take place. Once again, the uh, problem-solving devices that apply are the faith rest drill, as I said, is foundational, grace orientation, realize that everything that we have is from the Lord. It's all grace, whether it's good or whether it is adversity, it is all grace. This is why Scripture says that we are to give thanks for all things. And that's not just saying, well, I'm going to look at everything and find the good in it. It is to be thankful for whatever it is with the good and the bad, because everything is under the providential uh, care of God. So we are to give thanks for all things in gratitude to God. That's gr- part of grace orientation is an expression of gratitude to God, whatever is going on. Uh, doctrinal orientation, we understand the plan of God, and we have to orient our thinking to it. Love for God and occupation with Christ. So this is just how these, these doctrinal problem-solving devices fit within certain categories of testing. Now, Joseph is facing people testing. And as a result of the fact that his brothers have betrayed him, he's also got to face thought testing. Then as he goes through that thought testing, he gets uh, going to go to the next stage where he gets sold into slavery, and he's going to have to start dealing with uh, system testing. And, of course, I think I would classify getting uh, kidnapped and thrown in a cistern and 
uh, sold into slavery as a form of disaster testing. So he's just facing all these different kinds of tests at the same time, and God is training him to develop a relaxed mental attitude, to develop uh, objectivity, because the first thing that happens when we get hit with a test is we start to focus on ourselves. We start to focus on the way we have been hurt and the way we have been disappointed, and if we don't catch that and nip it in the bud, next thing you know, we're involved with a a lot of self-pity and woe is me, and we start feeling defeated and depressed and discouraged as if somehow God's more concerned with what's going on in Iraq than he is in our life. And so Joseph has to learn all this because God is preparing him to be the number two man in Egypt. And he is going to be hearing and dealing with all manner of problems. When those seven years of famine come and people start starving and people start losing their homes and everything else that would come along with that, he has got to maintain a uh, an upbeat, objective attitude and deal with people and not uh, out of objectivity and not out of emotion. So let's just review for us basic points on adversity versus stress, just to make sure you remember these these definitions. I always thought this was some of the most helpful uh, information I ever came across just for dealing with life's issues. Adversity is the outside pressure of either adversity or prosperity. Just about anything you run into in life puts pressure on your soul, whether you realize it or not. Good times, bad times. I had a friend of mine that uh, one time told me, he said he had gone through a lot of adversity, and when his business took off, he became very successful. And he said, um, he told me, he said, Robbie, he said, prosperity is ten times more difficult to deal with than adversity. So adversity is just that outside pressure which comes from the circumstances of life. Stress is inside pressure in the soul, and it's helpful to think of the analogy of what happens in the process of uh, uh, refining and smelting metals, that if you're making steel beams, you're going to put them through a stress test, and you're put through pressure because a lot of times the naked eye or just basic uh, observation can't detect hairline fractures inside, uh, or weaknesses inside that that metal, but you put it under pressure, external pressure, then if there's an internal weakness, then it would create a fracture. And what do we call those? Stress fractures. And so the the internal dynamics fail under the external pressure. So adversity is that outside pressure. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. Second point, adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you, and you can't change anything about it. Whatever you go through, you live in a fallen world. You live with fallen people. Those fallen people run fallen systems, and so everything is part of Satan's cosmic system, and you can count on it. There will be adversity. But stress is what you do to yourself. It's what you, how you choose to respond to that external pressure that comes from the situations in life. Third point, adversity is inevitable. You can't run away from it. You can't hide from it. You can't deny it. You, you know, a lot of people do that. That's how unbelievers handle it. They handle it by denying it. It's not really there. Uh, they uh, ignore it. They uh, dope themselves up so they don't have to fully face it. They dive into a bottle of uh, scotch or vodka or cheap whiskey or whatever it is, um, 
Adversity is inevitable. Stress, though, is optional. That's your decision. It's what's going on inside your soul. Fourth point, stress is always the result of sin nature control of the soul. That fragmentation that takes place internally, that is the result of the outside pressure, is the result of sin nature control. The sin nature can produce some extremely attractive solutions to to external adversity. They look good, they feel good, they sound good, they work. I mean, Satan is the master of producing things that look good and work. But they only work in the short term. Short term can be a year, two years, five years, ten years. But eventually, it doesn't work. Sin is always fun. I always remember, every time I talk about sin, I think about this. I remember when I was in high school, I went on a ski trip with Camp and Isle. And they used to... uh, they put four of us in a in a in a uh, room. We'd go up to Lake City and go skiing, and each room had a young adult male in the room that was sort of our cabin counselor. And we'd have evening devotions. And this guy was uh, he was in his first year of seminary, I think, or he was thinking about it. And uh, we got into a discussion when I was talking about sin, and I, I he said, "Is sin fun?" I said, it "Sure is." You know, that's why it's so attractive. And he argued about that. He, he wanted to argue that sin, sin really isn't fun. You just think it is. I said, no, sin's fun. That's why we want to do it. Feels good when we're doing it. About three years later, he left his wife for, for another woman. I, wa- I always wanted to call him up and say, is sin fun? <laughs> I just have a perverse little nature. I still see him every now and then. I've never asked him that. One of these days, maybe I will. Anyhow, so uh, sin always has some sort of attractive, feel-good, immediate uh, solution to the problem. So the result of that, though, is always going to be stress. Stress is the result of sin nature controls the soul, and it's a failure to handle adversity through the gracious provision of the ten stress busters. When you don't use one of the stress busters, you are using sin. Trust me. You're relying upon yourself rather than God's provision, God's promises, and God's principles. Fifth, the stress busters allow the believer to face any situation in life and remain poised, stable, and in control of the situation, no matter how horrible or agonizing it might be, without giving in to the sin nature. This is one of the greatest principles that we can, we can get our, our, our spiritual fingers around. Is This is what we mean that God's Word is sufficient. It's that, you know, in the 20th century, in the post-Freudian psychobabble world of modern society, we can all list any number of emotional problems or mental problems or behavioral problems that people have. And in fact, many, if not most of these, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to get myself in some sort of legal problem, but most of these that are diagnosed in that people get medicated for and they I am amazed at how many scripture how many Christians suddenly begin to live the Christian life after they get on Prozac or Zoloft or some something else. Now they can live the Christian life. No, your Prozac's living the Christian life. You're not doing it. Um, but 
we live in a world where we identify all these behavioral problems, and yet there are no medical tests, there's no physical markers, there's no x-ray, CAT scan, PET scan, you know, lab work, anything that, mat- that can tell you what these things are. They are identified through talk therapy only. And a psychiatrist or psychologist says, hmm, you've got this, that, or the other thing. And the, issue, the th- question we should be asking ourselves about this is up until, let's say, 1930, up until 1930, when people didn't know about these things, didn't have this nomenclature or these kinds of things, and how did Christians handle problems? Are we really saying that, you know, you really couldn't live the Christian life until Zoloft was invented? Ah, but now you can't. Okay, wait a minute, is that, where is that? First Hezekiah? Where is that? See, what the problem is that if you have to understand some of these emotional disorders in order to be able to properly treat them so you can live the Christian life, what about all those Christians who lived up until about 100 years ago who didn't know about them? You mean they really were caught behind the eight ball there, weren't they? They just, they, they just had scripture, didn't they? They just couldn't do it, could they? All they had was a Bible, the promises of God, and the filling of the Spirit. But now, we not only have that, we've got Zoloft and Prozac, and we've got talk therapy, and we can handle anything now, right? See, it is a direct assault. All psychiatry is a direct assault on the sufficiency of the grace of God, the sufficiency of the cross, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And people say, well... It just makes it easier. Shortcuts oftentimes don't make it easier because you still have to learn sometime how to apply doctrine. And that's the issue. And sometimes learning how to apply doctrine just isn't easy. That's what spiritual life is all about. That's why Paul uses terms like struggle and warfare and all these terms that indicate the difficulty of it. It's a battle. And that is not just a metaphor. It is a spiritual struggle. We have to learn. We're fighting with that sin nature within us, and we have to learn to apply doctrine. So this is just tremendous. This means that no matter what's going on in your life, and what you're facing, you may think is horrible, and the guy sitting on the other side of the church faces that, but it's not an issue for him. See, we're all different. But the Word of God is sufficient for all of us. No matter what we're going through, the Word of God is sufficient, and we may struggle through things all of our lives. And it's the same thing. But you don't give up, and you keep applying Scripture, and when you look back on it, you may not see growth, but God sees the growth. God produces the growth. And it depends on using the Word of God and the provisions that God gives us. Sixth point, sin nature control means Arrogance, always. Arrogance, 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 and that means the five arrogant skills. And it's either in overt arrogance or it's in pseudo-humility. And both are manifestations of arrogance. Some people, you just look at them, you spend two minutes with them, you say, man, I can't stand their arrogance. Other people, they're just so nice and they're just so sweet, and that's just how their arrogance manifests itself. It's just pseudo-humility. But you have the five arrogant skills of self-absorption where you just focus on yourself. 
and you're just always thinking about your problems, your issues, and that, of course, leads to the whole and has produced in the self-absorption as, uh, who is it, Christopher Lash in the culture of narcissism. Christopher Lash in the culture of narcissism, his description of the baby boom generation. And uh, just self-absorption is all it is, and self-absorption produces self-indulgence, and that's that's part of the cosmology, the cosmic thinking of of uh, our our generation. Uh, so that leads to self-justification. We have justified it so much, justified our self-absorption so much by the time you're six years old that it is so normative to your thinking the rest of your life you don't realize you're doing it. Sort of like a fish swimming in water doesn't know he's swimming in water because he's always been there. Self-deception. See, self-justification leads to self-deception. You create your own concept of the world, your own. Uh, you create your own little world, your own little norms and standards, your own little value system, and then you start living like all the world should be that way. And then somebody flies an airplane into uh, the World Trade Center, and you realize the world is not made up the way you think it is. And then this, of course, leads to self-deification because it's ultimately rebellion against the authority of God, and you've taken God out of the picture and put yourself into the picture as the ultimate authority for everything in life. Okay, those are just <clears throat> six basic um, principles to keep in mind in terms of how to handle adversity. Adversity is outside pressure. Stress is inside pressure. Adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. And it all depends on your volition. Now, when you look at Joseph, and Joseph is stuck in a people test, and he's stuck in one of the tougher people tests, it's rejection. So we need to talk a little bit about rejection and how rejection takes place and what the dynamics of rejection are, because we all deal with it and have dealt with it in various manifestations. And rejection is one of those complex things, because rejection can be either real or imagined. There's a lot of people who create all kinds of problems for their life because they think they've been rejected, that they've been offended, that they've been ignored, that they've been uh, betrayed, and nothing like that uh, happened at all. It could be something you experienced in childhood. Perhaps uh, your parents got divorced or a death of a parent. See, a child can respond to that as if it's rejection. They think often when parents get divorced that it's their fault, that they're the ones who caused it. And so they, it's not a real rejection. It's just a, an imagined rejection, but they, handle, they don't know how to handle it with doctrine, so they handle it in various ways that seem natural to them, which are the outgrowth of their own sin nature. Uh, we can be uh, betrayed by a friend. We can go through uh, divorce. You can go through uh, situations as a child where your parents discipline you, and because in arrogance you react to that discipline, you treat it as, uh, a, as something that is hostile to you as opposed to understanding that it is the honest, objective expression of parental love. But you think that your parents hate you, and so that you begin to dwell on it in arrogance and blow it out of proportion, and the, then you begin to think of it in terms of abuse. And then when you go, become an adult, you go to some psychotherapist, and they tell you that, that you were actually abused, and they take you through some sort of hypnosis uh, regression, and next thing you know, you're manufacturing all kinds of memories, repressed memories about your parents, and what they did to you, and none of that actually happened, but it's all been uh, generated out of your own own arrogance. It's not real, 
but it is just as real as it were as real uh, as as uh, as if it had happened but you have to learn how to deal with that from the objectivity of scripture everybody in life faces injustice we're all victims see what i've been describing is basically the pathology of vic- victimhood and victimization and we live in an age of victimization and victimhood, where that's everybody's problem. is Well, you've been victimized somehow. You've been victimized by society. You were born in the ghetto instead of in River Oaks. Uh, you've been uh, victimized by an education system. You didn't uh, go to the right schools. You've been victimized by the fact that instead of being able to go to college when you were 18 and getting a good education, you got drafted and you went to Vietnam and you got wounded or whatever it is. But, you know, everybody has uh, things that happen to them that are not what we would call fair or just or what or whatever it might be. And so people tend to focus on these things. Uh, you can go through live in uh, a home where you're neglected. You can be bullied by parents. You can be bullied by friends or siblings. And, of course, the favorite word that we use is abuse. You ought to just avoid using that word abuse. Uh, words ca- are, are, carry all kinds of baggage with them. They carry ideological baggage with them. They carry psychological baggage with them. And often when we use words like, I'm a victim or I'm a, I've been abused, that carries a, just a whole world view with it that, as believers, we don't want to uh, deal with. Victimization is something that's true for every single one of us. We're all victims. We are all victims of the fact that Satan rebelled against God, and he tempted Eve in the garden, and then Adam sinned, and look at where we all are. It's Adam's fault. Yes, it is. And we're all fallen, and we live in a fallen world with fallen people, and it's Satan's cosmic system. So that means that since we're all in the same boat, Nobody has the right to emphasize their problems over somebody else's because we're all in a fallen situation. And to one degree or another, every one of us is going to go through uh, the negative aspects of living in a fallen world. Let me give you what may be an oversimplified illustration. We're going to have a football passing contest. Okay, we're going to have four people, and they're going to stand down here on the corner of Westheimer and Fountain View, and they all have to throw a football into a bucket. And so we're going to have four people. One is a middle-aged adult who played football in high school. Another would be a young, uh, we'll be politically correct here, young Hispanic female with no athletic background whatsoever. Our third contestant is a, a physically handicapped teenager. Then we are going to have a, uh, a 20-something energetic black man in physical prime and participant in sports. And then we're going to have a couple of oldie-goldie professional football players uh, like Joe Willie Namath or Johnny Unitas or Roger Staubach or somebody like that. We're going to have these old pros. And they've got to throw this football. Now, you would think that some of them are going to have an advantage over everybody else, right? Because the contest is to take that football and throw it into a bucket. But the bucket is at the corner of Hollywood and Vine in California. See, it doesn't matter that one of them has a little better advantage over another one because that's just relative to each other. The reality is that the task itself is impossible 
See, they're all victims of their limited creaturehood. Nobody can achieve the objective. And see, that's the way it is for every one of us. We all face these crises, adversities in life one way or another. I remember years ago, suddenly it dawned on me as I was growing up that that no matter who you talk to, everybody, even if they look like they just had a wonderful life, they all have something that they've had to deal with that's been pretty tough. That's just the way it is living in the devil's world. So the Scripture gives us the solution to these problems. And the solution comes from the Word of God. And we have to learn how to use the Word of God in order to solve these problems. And that comes from knowing promises, claiming promises, and being in Bible class, learning how to think about things about biblically. So let's just look at the doctrine of rejection as it Oh, we learned from Joseph. Here's the case. Point number one. The brothers, 11 brothers, have all rejected Joseph. They've attempted to kill him. They uh, either directly or indirectly by starvation, and then they sold him into slavery. Now, how would you respond to that? I mean, if you're a believer and you're saying, saying, I need to respond to this situation within the framework of divine viewpoint, what is my mental attitude going to be? How is that going to affect what I say and what I do? So we have to think about this. Rejection. Rejection comes in many forms. Rejection may be being forsaken in romance or marriage, being attacked by friends or foes. Foes we expect, friends we don't. That makes it more difficult. Uh, we may be ignored by those we wish to impact or impress. And they just never seem to respond to our diligent efforts the way we uh, think they should. We may be openly persecuted, ridiculed, physically attacked, bullied. We may be repudiated or eliminated, or we may just simply be set aside. The PC word for that is being marginalized. See, I try to avoid this term, but so many, so many of us are so caught up in modern PC terminology, I have to use it just so you get a clue as to what I'm talking about. Uh, third, the natural reaction from the sin nature is to react to these things in terms of emotion. That's what we want to do. We respond in anger. We respond in bitterness. We respond in hatred. Uh, and instantly we're focusing on the fact that we're hurt. This is the first arrogance skill. It's self-absorption. And that's quickly followed by self-indulgent. We're going to keep thinking about it. We're going to pull it out of the closet of our memory, and we're going to mull it over while we're trying to go to sleep at night or while we're driving down the road. Next thing you know, we're just angry as, as ever all over again. And we're not moving through the rejection and solving it. We are just uh, making it worse. Fourth, at this point, we've entered into sin nature control. We're converting the outside pressure from the adversity of rejection into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Now we're poised for self-fragmentation and spiritual self-destruction. We're just starting to spiral out of control inside of our own souls. Now we have to remember that point number five is the sin nature dominates. We tend to react initially from the emotion in our soul. Then we move from from the, into the third arrogant skill of self-justification. We have all kinds of reasons why it is valid for us to respond the way we do to that person. It's not our fault. I'm a good person. I did everything right. Why didn't they realize that I need this job? Why didn't they realize that that I'm am better than the other person, that I'm more qualified? Um, 
why it, don't they understand that I have a much better personality and I'm a nicer individual? And so we, we justify uh, our sinfulness. So we have to understand that rejection is very complex. It can be real or it can be imagined. On the one hand, we have a rejector, in this case, the 11 brothers of Joseph, and we have the rejectee, Joseph. In this case, it's an open and shut case of real rejection. But in other cases, it may be, it may be perceived rejection. Sometimes this happens. You see this in a young couple, and they're just getting married. They're in their mid-20s, and they start getting involved in a job. And all of a sudden, the, the husband decides that, oh, I need to go back to school. So now he's working 50 hours a week, and he's going to school at the same time, which means he has very little time left over to spend with his wife. And up to that point, they spent a lot of time together in the rosy glow of, of early romance. And she takes that as rejection. It feels like rejection. It's not, but she feels that way. So then she starts spending time doing other things and developing a life apart from him because he's gone all the time going to school or at work or whatever, and he's not rejecting her at all. And so you can see this interplay. This happens a lot of times in, in young marriages, and then they've just got to figure out how to talk things through and, and work this out because they start reacting based on perceptions of how it feels and not, not reality. Sometimes there are indeed true rejections, but we have to learn how to handle these things uh, biblically. Rejection is often a matter, point number seven, rejection is often a matter of individual perception of reality. It's one of the greatest pressures in life because you have to have both objectivity and maturity to handle rejection or it will wipe you out. The only source of true objectivity, of course, is from Bible doctrine. And so as we look at this, I like to think about it in terms of the sin nature. Sometimes it's just helpful to think about the dynamics of the sin nature in terms of our own, uh, our own behavior. Just a reminder, we have a sin nature that is at its very core motivated by lust. We have an area of strength, which is the areas where we're least tempted to sin, but we produce human good. We're really good in this area. A lot, of, a lot of strength there. Then we have an area of weakness that produces personal sins. Now let's think this through a little bit in terms of an analysis. This is what is known as meditating on Scripture, just thinking things through in terms of our own life and dynamics from Scripture. From the area of weakness, we can produce, of course, all kinds of sins. We can produce mental attitude sins like anger and hatred and jealousy, uh, worry, anxiety, and this can uh, develop into sins of the tongue where we start running people down, maligning them, slandering them, gossiping about them, or it can end up in overt sins with physical violence, murder, or assault. And if somebody rejects us, we, we just may nurse those desires to pummel their head in. Then on the other hand, we could handle it through the area of strength. And this is the area where we produce human good and good deeds. Area of strength, remember, has an affinity with legalism and asceticism. This is one of our trends on the, uh, on the left side, asceticism and legalism. And so the area of strength is going to produce human good solutions. This will often involve a mix of establishment principles and human viewpoint thinking. It's going to sound good. It's going to look good. It's not going to have the, the obvious uh, uh, manifestations of overt sin, but it is still operating on the flesh apart from any provision that God gives us. 
But we have to remember that all reactions from the sin nature are going to be motivated by lust pattern, a lust to control, lust for power, a lust for recognition, uh, whatever it may be, materialism lust, uh, sexual lust, uh, chemical lust, all of these can work together and can work with either the area of strength and human good or with the area of weakness in terms of personal sins to try to solve that problem. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here in terms of, of uh, the pathology of this. One way that victim psychology has infiltrated um, Christianity is through so-called deliverance theology. Deliverance theology identifies your problems as not, that's not your problem, you have a demon. You have a demon of anger, spirit of bitterness. By that they don't mean an attitude of bitterness, they mean there's this, this real demon that's there. See, it's not your fault, you've got this external uh, demon there. So you've got a spirit of rejection or a demon of anger, a uh, demon of bitterness, something like that. So uh, it's not really really your fault. You're a victim of demonic activity. Now, if you're a victim of demonic activity, what's the solution? Well, we've got to have some kind of exorcism. See, nobody's dealing with the fact that what's going on inside your soul is that you're trying to make life work and solve the problems in your life apart from the Word of God. Let's blame everything else. You know, it's the like Adam did, it's the woman you gave me, God, or... You know, he's blaming both God and the woman. Uh, it's not his fault. So we find something else to, to blame rather than uh, turning to God. We have to look at what God says. So we have to look at promises. We have to understand uh, grace. We have to understand uh, God's basic provisions for us. Now, I want to go on and look at the solution here before we finish up. We have these basic stress busters. We confess sin. That's our recovery. Because so often that's our initial reaction is some kind of sin, so we confess it. And then we have to put something positive in there. That's, that comes as we're walking by the Spirit. We take the Word of God, faith, rest, drill, and we take some promise or principle, and we substitute that for the sinful reactions, thoughts, attitudes uh, that we had. And then we have to think in terms of grace. How can I deal with this person in grace and in kindness, and that's the last thing we want to do. And then doctrinal orientation, of course, we have to align our thinking with, with Scripture. We have other stress busters as we advance our personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God, impersonal love for mankind, occupation with Christ, which all work together, and then personal uh, perfect happiness. But I want to move on beyond this to give you a couple of positive examples. And the first is really hits us below the belt. The example is Jesus Christ. Not one of us has ever dealt with even a small percentage of the rejection that Jesus Christ went through in the first advent. The rejection that he went through that put him on the cross is far beyond anything that we ever went through. I mean, this is what John brings out in that first chapter of John. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He come here throughout all of history since since approximately 2000 BC. There's been this preparation of the Jews to receive the Messiah, God incarnate. We've gone through that many times, and when he finally shows up, the Jews reject him. Now, how does he respond? 
How did Jesus respond? Right there on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, this is really tough stuff here. Because that's the last thing we want to do is to move on and not take into account those failures. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does on the cross. The most rejected person of all history hangs there on the cross, and he does not react in bitterness, anger, resentment. It's unjust. Sure it is. It was illegal. It violated both Roman law and Jewish law. There was no basis for putting him on that cross, and he knew it. He was without sin. And yet, here they are, and you have the soldiers gambling for his robes and everything else, and he is the ultimate victim in all of human history, but he doesn't utilize it in his arrogance. Third, David foreshadows this in many of the Psalms and gives us a pattern for prayer and application of promises in the Psalms. And I've got several that I was thinking about, but the one I want you to uh, want to go to as we start, or as we wrap this up tonight, is let's just look at Psalm uh, 55. Psalm 55. This is a psalm written by David. And we don't know the precise details of, or the circumstances surrounding this, but it is a personal lament psalm, and a lament psalm is really where the psalmist is pouring out to God his problems, his adversity, and he is calling upon God to intercede in his behalf because of particular circumstances or situations uh, in his life. And he's dealing with betrayal and treachery in this particular psalm. Verse 12, let's just skip into the, jump into the middle of the psalm. He says, For it is not an enemy who approaches me. See, we expect someone who has it in for us to deal with us in an in a inappropriate or illegitimate way of betrayal or treachery. He says, For it's not an enemy who approaches me, then I could bear it. See, you know, we can understand that when the when somebody who hates us stabs us in the back. It says, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. and We walked to the house of God in the throng. This was his closest friend, he is saying. Someone who, with whom he had close fellowship who just completely turned his back on and betrayed him in an extremely treacherous act. We don't know what that is. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see the psalmist's prayer. Now, the psalmist is praying this prayer in fellowship. This is what's called an imprecatory prayer. C.S. Lewis thought these imprecatory prayers were inspired by the devil. They were not. Uh, David is in fellowship. But this is the inaction of the principle, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. See, we're turning, the psalmist here is turning the injustice over to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And so he is calling upon God to exercise justice in behalf of this injustice. In verse 15 he says, Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into Sheol. For, and this is a reminder of what happened to Korah in the rebellion against Aaron and Moses. There's another two that experienced tremendous rejection year after year, taking those two and a half, three million Jews through the wilderness constantly rebelling against the authority of Aaron and Moses. You know, just one rejection after another. Folks, you just can't think life's about a popularity contest. 
Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, just like the uh, Korah and their those who followed them in that rebellion. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. So that is his prayer. He wants God to deal with them in justice. He's casting the, his care upon God. That's how this. That's the uh, uh, an example of that right there in verse 15. And then he his confidence shifts. Notice that focus. Earlier in the psalm, he's talking about his problem. See, there's nothing wrong with focusing on your problem when you're taking that to God. He says back in verse uh, 1, he's calling upon God. He says, give ear to my prayer. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. Because, And then in verse 3, he begins to focus on the problem because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. See, that's where he's focusing on his problem and on his suffering. But by the time you get to verse 16, he's focusing on the character and the plan and the provision of God. He says, as for me, I will call upon God, and God will deliver me. People will generally fail us at some time or another. People tend to be flawed. We all have times when we're uh, unfaithful, independable, when we do not respond the way we ought to respond. Uh, there are times for every one of us that we could think, if we thought long enough, of failures that our parents, uh, they're only human. As wonderful as your parents may have been, they were human beings, they were flawed, they failed. As wonderful as you are as a parent, you know, there were probably times when you made mistakes. That's what it means to be a fallen human being. But our focus is on God who works all things together for good, Romans 8.28, as we've seen in our study of Joseph. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. See, that's going back to that same theme I mentioned earlier about meditation, thinking scripturally, taking the scripture that we know in our soul and enveloping the situation with the promises and principles of God. It's not the Christian life isn't passive; it is mentally active. And then he goes on to say, "He has redeemed my soul in peace." It's a in the Hebrew it uses a an, uh, an imperfect tense here, as if it's past action, it's actually future. But he's so certain of the outcome that he uses. Uh, past tense, he has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. For there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. See, God will execute justice from the supreme court of heaven. You may not get to watch, which is what we all want to do. But God will execute justice, and he knows just how to do it and when the right time will be to do it. So this is what Joseph is learning, so that Joseph can be a good learner, I mean a good leader when the pressure comes, when things intensify, but he has to learn through going through the furnace of adversity in his own life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the sufficiency of your word, the truth of your word, the power of your word. And, Father, we pray that as believers, that as we look at the things that we do in life, that we can stop and think uh, a little more frequently about how to respond and react to situations from a divine viewpoint, biblical framework, 
uh, rather than just uh, letting our mouths or our emotions run ahead of us. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.